You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The companies who have begun to adopt these these programs, who have begun that shift left movement, have already been able to develop in a more robust way, are far more prepared for laws that come down the pike, and really sit in a much greater position to take advantage of legal change. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben shares the story of the FBI potentially deploying spyware. I've got the story of Google's nearly $400 million settlement over location privacy data. And later in the show, Chris Handman from TerraTrue on his work transforming legal teams into advocates and collaborators to ensure privacy is baked in every step of the way. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So mine comes from the New York Times uh, and their technology section by Mark Mazzetti and Ronan Bergman. And this is about a little dispute that's developing between uh, the leaders of the FBI and members of Congress about spyware, specifically Pegasus, Mm. from the NSO group, which we've Mm. talked about a number of times uh, Mm -hmm. on this show. Mm -hmm. So Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, was asked at a hearing uh, several months ago whether the FBI has used Pegasus, deployed Pegasus, to spy on uh, either U.S. persons or overseas targets. Hmm. And Director Ray admitted that the FBI was Pegasus curious, if you will, (laughs) (laughs) but only for research and development purposes. Who among us has not been, Ben, really? (laughs) Exactly. So they got a license, but it was just to do, quote, research and development. Okay. He said at the hearing to be able to figure out how bad guys use it, for example. Hmm. There was a request put in uh, under the Freedom of Information Act to get more details on how the FBI either used or did not use Pegasus. And according to documents obtained by the New York Times, who put in the Freedom of uh, Information Act request, Mm -hmm. the FBI was quite interested in not only purchasing a license for Pegasus, but for deploying it. Hmm. Uh, They wanted to use it in some of their own federal criminal investigations. Uh, they went to the point of preparing briefs on how the spyware could potentially be used, uh, and they clued in prosecutors on how these types of hacking tools would need to be disclosed during criminal proceedings if 
Pegasus was used to obtain evidence against a potential criminal, would they have to be notified uh, and under what statutory authority? Hmm. So we have a problem here uh, (laughs) because members of Congress led by Senator Ron Wyden, who uh, is oft cited on this show because of his concern for digital privacy, Uh kind of implying that Christopher Wray was lying uh, at his congressional testimony. Hmm. So, obviously, you are not allowed to lie at congressional testimony. You are under oath. Right. Uh, So, the implication is that Christopher Wray committed perjury. Hmm. Uh, I don't think you have a good perjury case here. Uh, Officials know how to be cagey enough to avoid a perjury charge. Right. There's no way you could prove that uh, Director Wray purposely misled the committee. And it's possible that included in the definition of research and development— uh, is how can we use this for our own purposes to catch criminals? Okay. The end of the story is that the FBI ultimately decided not to deploy the tool in support of criminal investigations. Hmm. So there's some information here that's unknown to us. First and foremost, why they purchased the license, but then what happened between the time they purchased the license and the end of 2021 when they made a decision not to use Pegasus. Hmm. Uh, Was there a moral consideration or more likely were they worried about bad publicity or potential legal liability uh, that might hurt them in criminal investigations? Because by that point, Pegasus had kind of become too hot to handle around the world. Right. Uh, We had talked about stories on, on this podcast about how different countries had deployed Pegasus to spy on dissidents, protesters. Mm-hmm. It's a zero-click uh, method of getting into people's personal devices, so it's quite intrusive. Right. Uh, so obviously people in the privacy community take it very seriously. Uh, NSO is persona non grata among our friends at places like the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to see a battle between Congress and the FBI uh, over the coming weeks and months about what happened here. Hmm. Uh, I think there are further questions for Director Ray about why he potentially misled the committee on this. Uh, and more importantly, what was the FBI seeking to do with Pegasus? How are they seeking to use it? And why ultimately they, did they decide not to deploy it? Uh, and I think those questions are very much unanswered at this point. So in, in your opinion, what, what is your take on the FBI's uh, le- ability to use a tool like Pegasus legally? I don't understand why they would not be able to use it. Uh, hmm. It is spyware, but the FBI has all different types of surveillance tools that can get into people's devices, mm-hmm. uh, spe- specifically if you get a warrant. Now, I don't know if they were considering warrantless uh, use of Pegasus, they would probably have to get some type of approval from a judge. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just because it's spyware, it doesn't mean per se it's illegal uh, to use it on U.S. persons. Hmm. Uh, If you can get judicial approval, yes, it's a very intrusive form of spying. But is it any more intrusive than other types of surveillance we talk about like all the a time. a wiretap, yeah. A wiretap sure. or a geofence warrant for a limited geographical area hmm. or a license plate reader. Uh, I think the Supreme Court 
would look at this with very watchful eyes because we're talking about getting on people's personal devices. And we know from Riley v. California that people have a robust expectation of privacy in the contents of their smartphones, for right. example. Hmm. Uh, so I think they would take that seriously. That does not mean that in no circumstances would the FBI be able to use uh, legally deploy this tool. I do think if the FBI had chosen to use it, we would have had a type of case where they found, they used Pegasus to get onto a device, mm-hmm. found illegal activity, charged the person, disclosed to the person hey, we got evidence by the use of the spyware tool, uh, and then the person would uh, file a motion to suppress that evidence. Hmm. And we could have gotten a really interesting Fourth Amendment hearing uh, on the relevant issues here. Unfortunately for us legal analysts, that's not going to happen <laughs> because uh, the FBI, FBI ultimately decided not to use uh, this information. So mm-hmm. I don't see why the use of spyware would necessarily be illegal, especially if we're done pursuant to a warrant. I think this is something that uh, we can't just wave away and say, well, they, they decided not to use it here, so there's a precedent against using spyware. I don't think that's the case. So then what is Congress's interest here? If, if there's no uh, illegality, uh, is this just a, a general policy question? It's a policy question that Congress itself could resolve. I mean, they Hmm. could do any number of things. I don't think they would outright ban the FBI from using this type of spyware, although they could. Right. Uh, They do have jurisdiction over a federal agency. Uh, I think what would be more likely is that they could limit the circumstances in which spyware was used, Mm -hmm. limit the categories of crime. Mm -hmm. So you can use Pegasus or similar types of spyware, but only for— Terrorism, uh, you know, racketeering, any mm-hmm. any type mm-hmm. of violent uh, mm-hmm. conspiracy, those types of crimes. And you have to get some kind of judicial oversight. Exactly. That sort of thing. Uh, so yeah. you, it would have to go through an Article Three court as opposed to, say, let's use Pegasus to nab somebody for tax evasion or financial fraud. I see. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. that's where Congress could play a role and say, if you are going to use this type of technology— You can only use it when absolutely necessary to stop criminal acts of violence. Hmm. I think we could see something like that as part of a broader data privacy measure. Um, But I don't think we're at the point where they would specifically outlaw this type of surveillance. They are generally loath to do something like that just since they don't want to hamstring federal investigators. Right, right. And what about uh, for Director Ray himself? I mean, does he— Is he in for a stern talking to or a slap on the wrist? What do we expect? He'll be yelled at (laughs) at a future congressional proceeding, uh, but he's used to it. Yeah, he's part of the job. Yeah, he's been yelled at by people all across the political spectrum. Right. uh, And he's not going to be charged with perjury. Yeah. Um, They're just going to accuse him of misleading the committee. He'll say what he's going to say, probably what he's said in, in quotes to the New York Times here. Uh, I wasn't trying to mislead you. We were using this for research purposes. Mm-hmm. We never actually deployed it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want a WWE-style congressional hearing, you might get one <laughs> uh, in the next Congress. Okay. So right. we'll look out for that uh, can't-miss C-SPAN TV. Uh-huh. Right, those of you who are on pins and needles waiting for these sorts of conflicts, uh, get start, start uh, popping your popcorn now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right. Interesting stuff. We'll have a link to that story in the show notes. 
my story today, I, I think it's fair to say this is this week's big one. Yep. <laughs> so. Sometimes Dave and I pick the same story and <laughs> right. one of us has to do something uh, else. Yeah. That's what happened here. We both picked, <laughs> we both picked this one. That's right. And I pulled rank and I said, Ben, go find yourself another story. <laughs> Seniority is tough, you know? I know, right. Uh, so this is, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I chose the coverage from the record of our friends over at Recorded Future. This is, uh, written by Jonathan Grieg and, uh, many people are covering this today. This is, uh, Google has to pay nearly $400 million over deceptive location tracking practices. Uh, So Google has agreed to settle with a number of states, 40 states, um, over uh, revelations that it tracked users' locations even when it was explicitly told not to do so. What's going on here, Ben? So 40 state attorneys general. I always love the opportunity to get that one right. Yeah. A lesser man would have said attorney generals, but... Like me, yeah. I would have said that, sure. Uh, (laughs) I don't have one of those highfalutin law degrees like you do, Ben. That's really the only thing they teach you in (laughs) law school is how to say attorneys general. Right. (laughs) Uh, But there are 40 of them, which is quite a coalition, Uh uh, that filed a lawsuit against Google accusing them of misleading location tracking practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically... People were under the impression, whether they read the EULA or not, that when you did things like turning off Wi-Fi or deleting applications or logging out of something like Google Maps, that Google was no longer collecting your location. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it turns out that they were uh, much of the time. Uh, And this is a deceptive trade practice, which is why state attorneys general got involved. Uh, They sued, I think, seeking to to achieve a settlement and also to get Google to change its behavior. Hmm. Uh, the settlement is quite large. It is $391.5 million, mm-hmm. uh, as you pointed out. These are going to go into the state coffers of 40 separate states. I don't think that's going to make a huge difference in anybody's you know, long-term yeah. budget outlook. Yeah. But it's, it's a way to hold Google accountable um, for their mis- misleading actions. And then I think more importantly— Google uh, is going to be forced to correct some of the practices that are mentioned in the settlement. Yeah. They've said that they've already done that. Um, uh, one of their spokes, spokespeople, Jose Castaneda, uh, said that consistent with improvements we've made in recent years, we have settled this investigation, which was based on outdated product policies that we changed years ago. Right. Old news, Ben. Old news. Nothing to see here. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> And I take them at their word that they have changed those policies. They don't want to uh, subject themselves to further legal liability. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the largest settlement of its kind on a data privacy issue against big tech. Right. So that's one of the reasons why it's very significant. Another is that there's this vacuum. We'll talk about this in the context of the interview that you do. Mm. At the federal level in protecting data privacy, and so it's— the uh, states who have had to take a prominent role. Uh, And I think it's really interesting that 40 states with ideologically ideologically diverse governors uh, and attorneys general were able to come together and uh, put together this this lawsuit and get this settlement. So it's very significant. This article points out that uh, just in the third quarter alone, Google brought in... uh, all, over $54 billion in advertising revenue. 
So uh, when you look at a quarterly income statement of $54 billion and then a $400 million settlement, on the one hand, as you mentioned, folks are pointing out that this is a very large settlement, the largest ever. Um, is this large enough to get Google's attention? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, does it, does it it's obviously it's not going to put them out of business. You no, know, they're, it they're is not. not. They're, they're not going to cut off, you know, donuts in the break room or something over this, but it's still, it ain't nothing. It's not nothing. Um, in the grand scheme of things for Google, as you say, it's not going to really affect their bottom line very much. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about a fraction of a percent of maybe 0.5% of, of their revenue. Right. Uh, and that's just their monthly ad revenue. So, yeah, it's it's going to be a drop in the bucket. Yeah. I think this is more about publicity. Uh, we've seen other big tech companies try to get to the forefront of data privacy issues and hold themselves out as the protectors of your data, of your information. Um, certainly Apple has taken the lead among the big four tech companies in doing that. Right. I think for Google, this is a way uh, for these attorneys general to say, we got a metaphorical scalp here um, and have gotten them to admit wrongdoing and to change their practices. And for Google to say, mea culpa, mm-hmm. uh, this is, we're going to uh, pay this $400 million. We're going to pay out the largest settlement uh, of this type on, on data privacy issues. And we're going to change our practices. So it's an opportunity for them in the court of public opinion to kind of regain some trust by taking this uh, this issue seriously and not fighting it tooth and nail through the court system, um, you know, for the next 10 years, as they probably could have tried to do. Yeah. This article also points out that uh, Google settled with Arizona back in October for $85 million and that Arizona, Indiana, Texas, as well as Washington, D.C. have brought their own individual lawsuits uh, against Google as well. So um, this isn't necessarily the end of this for Google. Certainly not. If I were in the legal count- office of the legal counsel at Google, I would certainly uh, be looking for an advance check on my next payment <laughs> right. uh, because there is a lot of potential legal liability here. And they are a ripe target for a number of reasons. One, big tech companies are politically helpful targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not winning any popularity contests. Mm. Two, you can sue them for a lot of money because they have a lot of money. Right. Uh, and you can prove damages by showing that these are either deceptive trade practices or they are violating people's state constitutional rights or federal constitutional rights. So mm-hmm. you can see why states would be so eager to initiate these lawsuits. Uh, yeah, so even though this is a large settlement, this is not the end of Google's legal liability. If it's not this location tracking issue, it's going to be something else. Um, when you have such a large market share and you do so many things that could potentially violate antitrust laws, labor practices, their own privacy, uh, state privacy legislation, you're opening yourself up to a lot of potential legal liability. What about the other big tech companies? If I'm Facebook, if I'm Apple, Microsoft, you know, and the, the usual suspects, uh, does this have their attention as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're coming after you. Uh, I think... Google's was particularly egregious because of uh, the nature of the EULAs themselves and Mm. how nonspecific they were about the type of location tracking that took place. Mm -hmm. And because some of the applications that were 
the main drivers of this uh, improper location tracking were Google applications, mm. uh, like Google Maps, for example. But yes, these other big tech companies are certainly not out of the woods. It shows that courts are are taking uh, violations of data privacy seriously. States now have these additional tools. California has a CCPA. We have a Virginia law, um, which they can use as causes of action against big tech companies. So, yeah, I mean, I would not be sitting comfortably uh, sitting comfortably on my couch if I'm one of the other companies and saying, <laughs> "Google sucks for you." Yeah, they're <laughs> right. not coming for us. Right, right. Yeah, they're they're coming for you. Yeah, uh, you're next. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. uh, And we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider to talk about on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Chris Handman, He is from a company called TerraTrue, and uh, our conversation centers on his work transforming legal teams into advocates and collaborators to make sure that privacy is baked in every step of the way. Here's my conversation with Chris. With the privacy landscape, when you think about where we are today, at least here in the United States, we still are largely governed by a kind of free-for-all. There is, as of today at least, no federal privacy legislation to speak of. There are a handful of state laws that have recently come down the pike, starting first in California and sort of extending eastward into Colorado and Virginia and a few others, about a half dozen states at this point. And all of those states were taking their cues, not from Congress, but from the EU, which famously passed the GDPR in 2018 when it came effective. And what we are really dealing with today is still this privacy revolution that remains in its infancy. Laws still are forming, regulations are inchoate, and companies as well as users are still struggling to navigate this landscape that here in the United States, at least, again, remains this patch quilt of kind of inconsistent and not terribly robust protections around data. And What that leaves us with is both industry as well as individuals not quite certain kind of where the future of privacy is going to be. I think where that future is going to be is increasingly up and to the right in terms of regulation and for good reasons and increasingly prescriptive around the types of data 
that companies are allowed to collect and process and share and limitations on how they can do those things. So at a high level, it remains a bit of a free-for-all, which is why we're now governed largely by this world of of consent and notice through privacy policies. And increasingly, that regime will likely fall to a regime where you are governed by true regulations that are prescribing how that data can be handled. But today, we're still sitting on the cusp, waiting for Congress perhaps to jump into that fray and adopt those national standards. Is it reasonable to say that uh, on a consumer level, folks tend to be a little cynical about this? I mean, I, I know, you know, personally, every time I find myself having to click through some kind of EULA, I kind of roll my eyes and, and wonder what it is I'm, I'm giving up this time. I think that's right. And I think that is a symptom of the legal rules that we've had in place, if you even want to call that. For the most part, what privacy in the United States has, re- has reflected is really this notion of you cannot commit an unfair trade practice, right? The the uh, kind of the only traffic cop at the federal level when it comes to privacy is the Federal Trade Commission, but they don't have a mandate to regulate privacy per se. What they do is have a mandate to regulate unfair trade practices, and it's under that rubric that the FTC has come after all the kind of like, you know, famous names out there from Facebook to Twitter onward, where they have said, look, you said in your privacy policy, you were doing these three things. And it turns out you're doing a lot more than that. And that was unfair to the consumer. Now, this is, uh, as you said, so what happens is companies get increasingly prolix with their privacy policies. They run for what feels like chapters. War and Peace looks like a dainty (laughs) read compared to a lot of these privacy policies. And of course, nobody bothers to read them. And so it ends up just being this sort of cat and mouse game between the regulatory authorities who peruse them and the lawyers in-house who are trying to figure out, okay, how can we make sure that we are protecting ourselves? Obviously trying to be as transparent as possible, but at the same time, until industry or regulations change where it's no longer this kind of like consent-based system. And this sort of, as you said, this sort of like, uh, it's a bit of a fiction, right? Like the idea that consumers are carefully scrutinizing every last jot and tittle of a privacy policy before clicking, yeah, I agree, is, of course, no one believes that. And so I think that is where regulations have said, look, we need to come up with a better system than that. What about the, the organizations who are creating these products? I mean, do let's say an organization is is trying in good faith to do the right thing here. In this free-for-all, as you describe it, I mean, do they find themselves as a, at a competitive disadvantage? Yeah. And so I want to be very clear. I think the vast majority of companies out there are trying to do the right thing. And it is unfair to the industry as well as the citizens of the United States that we live in these policies. I think everyone is clamoring for more clarity and really more certainty around what is privacy and how should we think about developing, enforcing, and kind of fomenting this culture of privacy. So yeah, I think for those companies, uh, the absence of those regulations, the absence of good guidance uh, does create a bit of a frustration. And it can create um, you know, competitive concerns because when you are dealing with uncertainty, right, that makes you either risk averse or it forces you to court uncertain kind of uh, obligations, or you may end up uh, 
forestalling certain products out of sorts of sorts of concerns. And then there's just a general sense of like, how will this play out in the marketplace? So I think that overall, you have a lot of companies and a lot of consumers who probably equally share this. And I think that's why in the last few months, you've seen a surprisingly broad-based bipartisan move across both houses, uh, both parties to come to some agreement of a fairly robust federal privacy law. And of course, anything remains to be seen there in any Congress, but with any luck, we can start to bring some of that clarity. Once we get some of that clarity, how do you envision uh, a process where this becomes just, you know, p- part of the routine? How, how do organizations go about baking in these sort of things from the get-go? And that's really what it gets down to. Privacy, when done properly, is a motivation, you know, from companies wanting to do the right thing and understanding the processes, the cultures, the uh, mechanisms and tooling to be able to get privacy right. And the only way you can really think about privacy in this day and age, being able to keep pace with a fast moving iterative life cycle of software development is to, you know, this is the phrase like shift left, right? We, we know about the concept in the security space about shifting left, moving regulation and testing and all sorts of scrutiny further into the ideation and development cycle. And as opposed to this kind of reactive uh, after products go out the door, you know, take a look. And I think privacy has historically occupied this almost rightward tilt on that continuum. It's a very reactive, very siloed type of discipline in the past. And I think what companies have increasingly come to embrace is this notion of shifting privacy left. Some have called it like privacy by design, but I think that has sometimes this like almost academic uh, tone to it. And I think what privacy needs to do and what a lot of companies are starting to recognize is move privacy from this siloed compliance heavy idea into sort of a forward thinking, how can we enhance the products from the get-go? How can privacy be a component of the way we enhance and develop our products? And that shift in thinking has already, I think you see at companies across the board, developed richer, better privacy protective products. And in fact, you kind of see it now manifest in really unique cultural ways. You know, look at Apple, for example, when they're advertising iPhones, right? They are having national campaigns built around really one value prop, right? This iPhone will protect your privacy. And that is a unique change. And I think the zeitgeist of the way we think about privacy, the way companies develop products. And so as companies look to enhance that privacy posture, to have more agility as new laws come down and have to adapt to new regulatory rules, having privacy built in this proactive shift left mentality is going to be a really important way of guiding those future developments. What are your thoughts in terms of companies preparing for, you know, whatever uh, regulatory regime might be coming? Are there ways that they can have their legal team, their software developers, you know, at the ready to, to be prepared for this stuff? Yes. And that really gets back to that, that shift left idea. If you have privacy built into that framework of your software development, if privacy has a seat at that table early and often, right, right from the moment of ideation, when the germs of great ideas start to blossom uh, and long before those products get coded and get shipped out the door, it is a lot easier for that collaboration between 
the people who build products and the people who review those products to get together, to collaborate, to understand, to speak the same common languages. Now, there are a lot of tools and a lot of technologies that can help promote that type of collaboration. But first, building and breaking down those sort of cultural and technological barriers to that shift left and that collaboration is a key part of that. The other part of that, though, is then developing just uh, first principles around how we think about privacy. The reality with privacy at the, at the end of the day is that despite all the overlap in laws and despite this kind of proliferation of regulation across the globe, there are many, many first principles that are largely the same. And it comes down to concepts like data minimization, thinking through consent, understanding sensitive types of data, being clear and uh, ensuring how that data is being used uh, to consumers, the risk profiles that certain uses or combinations of data can be. Those are a lot of principles that will apply across the board. And baking that into the way companies think about that from that get-go is a way of really ensuring a sort of agility so that no matter where the laws go, you already have these first principles in place that make it that uh, grace note changes that are really easy as opposed to having to lurch from regulation to regulation and constantly try to guess at, okay, what do we have to do now? You know, you're using the term collaboration, which which I like, um, but I can imagine that there are lots of organizations out there who, from the developer's point of view, they look at the legal team as almost being adversarial. You know, they're, they're the one, the, the department of no, throwing up, uh, you know, roadblocks and speed bumps. How do you execute that culture shift to make it a, a true collaborative effort? It's a great point. And I think one of the fears that I think most modern legal teams have is that they're going to be viewed as the place that you know, good ideas go to die. And mm-hmm. it is precisely that concern that I think is one of the biggest impediments to developing the types of privacy programs that are effective and dynamic and sort of well-suited for today's environment. And I think it begins with trust. A legal team, a privacy team that goes into a product team or an engineering team and starts reciting chapter and verse about Article 39 of the GDPR or you know, some obscure subsection of the CPRA is very unlikely to garner the types of trust. You need to speak about privacy in terms of product and the way privacy can enhance the product, the goodwill, the types of uh, types of proactive approaches to the way we want to think about our consumers that I think product people tend to want to pride themselves on. And it is a matter then of meeting them where they work, right? That is both a virtual and a sort of physical manifestation. It's trying to work in the same tools. It's trying to go to those uh, stand-ups, trying to be involved in those specs or confluence docs or wherever they happen to be iterating on these concepts. And then gradually creating that culture that says, hey, my role here isn't to veto. It's not to fly spec what you're doing. It's to really help you understand perhaps unintended or unseen consequences of using a type of data. There's a lot of uncertainty around like even what data we are using. It's remarkable when you start talking to some product folks, they may not even appreciate all the types of data that is being collected or may not appreciate that this is data that can actually be repurposed to to specifically target individuals. And so there's an educational process. And as you begin to talk in those pragmatic terms, 
I think those teams come to appreciate the value that legal and privacy teams can impart to the way they build their products. But that's really the emphasis is on building products as opposed to checking them off for like uh, going through a, a regulatory box checking exercise. And so it's a matter of tone. It's a matter of culture. It's a matter of emphasis. But I think when you combine those, the privacy teams have a very unique ability to become players in that uh, development process. And if you can't do that, then the whole concept of shifting left or privacy by design or whatever rubric you want to put this under, it becomes completely illusory. And you really do then default to the old world of just privacy as being this sort of compliance uh, checkbox. And I suppose in that case, the companies who do it well will have the competitive advantage. A hundred percent. And you see this already. And I think companies that have that are well known already for having dynamic, modern, kind of progressive notions of privacy, those that have invested in privacy managers and CPOs and others who are really building out uh, robust privacy programs already differentiate themselves in the market. You see it in their products, the way they speak about privacy, whether it's their blogs or whether they are uh, just talking in, 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 their, in modals and, and pop-ups and emails to their consumers. There's a, just a certain sense of sophistication. And I think it starts to develop that trust. And again, just getting back, the Apple example is just one of the most graphic ones. But you begin to see the way companies understand the importance of talking about privacy, of giving consumers some confidence that, hey, we are thinking about this. And you can't just do that as a mere marketing sham, right? This this does, uh, I think people can see through this and they can see it in their apps. They can see how it's using, uh, how data is being used. And that is um, the companies who have begun to adopt these, these programs, who have begun that shift left movement, have already been able to develop faster, uh, develop in a more robust way, are far more prepared for laws that come down the pike, and really sit in a much greater position to take advantage of legal change. Because again, not to be cynical about any type of legal change, but legal changes can have competitive effects. They can have even antitrust effects, right? And the more that companies have the flexibility and the infrastructure to adapt to these changes, uh, that always redounds into shipping faster, shipping better, and ultimately being more profitable. Ben, what do you think? I mean, I think it fits well with our discussion today on the vacuum at the federal level as it comes to data privacy legislation, it's mm. forcing companies to take the lead themselves, both to become industry leaders in data privacy, but also to head off potential legal challenges. I think life would be a lot easier for these companies if there were one federal standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason there's this impetus to do this, this work um, at companies big and small to get them to update uh their, their privacy practices is because of that vacuum at the federal level. So I thought it was an interesting conversation in that respect. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me how much um, it seems as though organizations now, we we're at the point where they've realized that you can't just bolt on privacy after the fact. Or that if you do that, chances are you're going to end up with a suboptimal outcome, right? It has to be your privacy folks have to work with your security folks from the get-go, 
and that's what's going to it's going to be most cost effective. It's yep. going to put you in the best. You know, that's your best case scenario. Right. It has to be part of your general organizational planning because you otherwise might expose yourself to liability or or bad publicity. I mean, I talk about that in my other work in the context of emergency management. Hmm. You don't want to be in the news because you're the company that did or the government that didn't properly prepare for a hurricane or a cyber attack or a power outage. Right. Uh, And I think the same exists here. Uh, we've seen companies, both in the public and private sectors, suffer uh, substantial reputational harm because they haven't done a good job protecting their data. Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, it, it should be part of the onboarding of new employees. It should be part of the organization's culture. Uh, it should be part of, you know, just as regular as as an, an HR training. Uh, privacy should just be part of an organization's culture. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Chris Handman from Terra True for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.